0: Welcome to the Semper Reformata Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. First Timothy chapter 3, please, and we'll read from verse 1. And so we hear God's word. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behaviour, given to hospitality and apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, but not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise must the deacons be grave not double-tongued not given to much wine not greedy of filthy lucre holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience and let these also first be proved and then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless even so must their wives be grave not slanderers sober Faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well, for they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree, and with great and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Acts chapter twenty, please. <coughs> Reading from verse 28. Acts 20 and 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch, and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And I, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him onto the ship. Well, in our last study last week, we read the whole way through Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And we concentrated on the description of his own ministry among them. And that's important. For Paul is leaving Ephesus and he's never going to return. And the elders that are left there will be responsible. For the local church. And believe you me, they will answer to God for their stewardship of his people. So, Paul has already reminded them of his own ministry there among them. If you think back to last week, he reminded them of his independent lifestyle, of his form of ministry, teaching both in the church and from house to house, of his calm assurance of faith no matter what the future might bring. So what he was doing at the beginning of this little chapter is he's setting out an example, a paradigm of ministry for which those elders should aim. So who are these elders? And what was Paul saying to them about their role in the church? Well, to find out about elders and eldership we have to go to First Timothy chapter three, that standard passage on church government. Actually, there are several passages in the New Testament that speak of eldership. In this passage in First Timothy, Paul is instructing Timothy about church leadership. He's saying this is a true saying if a man desire the office of a bishop. Well, um, don't get lost in that word. If you've been listening to that CD that I brought you up last week on Ignatius of Antioch, then you'll probably know a wee bit about bishops and 3 four ministry developing late in the church at the end of the first century. Bishop is the word episkopos. Elder is the word presbyteros. The Christian brethren sometimes call these bishops overseers. And they talk about the local church leadership as being the oversight, and they're correct in that the Jews knew exactly what an elder was. The Greeks were well used the word the work of an overseer, a bishop in the local towns and assemblies. So in the New Testament church, a bishop is what we would simply call today an elder, or a teaching elder, or maybe a pastor. According to Paul, the office is to be greatly desired. If a man desire the office of a bishop, well, such service has to be desired, hasn't it? To serve as a teaching elder in the Lord's Church must be a definite, all-consuming call in the life of a man before he can ever be considered for such a position. So how does the church assess the suitability of an elder, whether it's a a teaching elder or a ruling elder? Well, to Timothy, Paul gives some criteria. And I just want to briefly run down Paul's description here of eldership. Description of eldership. So open your Bible at 1 Timothy 3. The first thing that we see about an elder in verse two is that an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife. That's a fairly clear instruction, isn't it? To be an elder, whether teaching or a ruling elder in the church, an elder must be a man. Sorry, ladies, but it's God's word. And it's God's will and it's God's work and he knows what he's doing. An elder must be a man because only a man can be the husband of one wife. The man must only have one wife and that rules out women and it rules out people with partners as they talk about today. And it rules out people who have multiple wives and So he must be faithful in his marriage. That's not to say that he can't have had a previous wife. That's not what Paul's saying here at all. Perhaps a wife has passed away and he has remarried or other circumstances, and that does not rule him out here. What Paul is simply saying is that you must be the husband of one wife. And he must have good self-control. must be vigilant and he must be sober and he must be of good behavior. So a man who knows how to possess himself, a man who must keep a clear head and be sensible and be self-disciplined. And I suppose the argument and the logic in this is how can a man govern the church if he can't even control himself? And he must be hospitable. Quite simple, given to hospitality. Literally, he will have a love for strangers. Titus 1, verse 78. Satan expands this and says that a bishop must be a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, and temperate. This overseer must be able to teach. He must be apt to teach. I think that's important. Essentially, the Christian pastor or elder is first and foremost a teacher. His office is not sacramental. It's not ceremonial. He is to be an instructor in righteousness. So a man who can't preach and teach and who has no love for preaching has no right whatsoever to be in Christian ministry. And... Of course, women do not teach in the gathered assembly. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 11, it tells us some instructions about that. Um, and women, of course, are to learn in silence with all subjection. Paul says, I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man. His attitude to alcohol must be correct. See the way I put that? He says here that he must um, not be given to wine. And that's certainly very important. Wine befuddles the mind. And a Christian teacher needs a clear mind. And Christian teachers are to be examples to others. His temperament must be suitable. He must be not a striker, verse 3. Not given to wine, no striker. His temperament must be suitable. Um, He must be patient, not a brawler nor covetous. Gentle pastor will never be violent or never be a bully. Sadly, today... There's a lot of bullying in churches, bully pulpits. And you look across some of the great mega-churches that they have in the USA, you will see that there has been a great deal of scandal. Pastors and elders have been bullying people to get their own way. Must have a good attitude to money. Not greedy of filthy lucre. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. Be careful with it. Must have his home and family life well ordered. Um, Verse 4 One that ruleth well his own house having his children in subjection with all gravity there's a really difficult one I remember talking about this in Bible college years and years ago big subject in that one verse it's very hard when your children get into their teenage years and all the temptations of the world begin to crowd in and the peer pressure from school how do you keep your children in subjection these days I know one poor man, who was so distraught trying to fulfil this verse, he actually locked his daughter in her bedroom every evening after tea. Of course, she had a window. Skipped, caught her in portrush. Do you know, the man was nearly tearing his hair out with frustration. And it wasn't even his fault. The daughter was a sinner, just like we all are. So that's a verse that requires some further examination, perhaps at another time. He must be a spiritually mature, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. The danger here is that if a man is appointed to Christian ministry too soon after his conversion, he may well become overly conceited and start thinking too well of himself. And he must have a good reputation A good report of all them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. He must have an outward reputation, even with unbelievers, because the world is watching us and watching the church. Now, there's the list of criteria for eldership. I preached on this passage itself um, in a more expanded form one time in church in Belfast. And afterwards one of the nice ladies came over to me and she says, Mr McAvoy, we don't want you to preach on that sermon ever again. And I said, Why not? She says, Because it's hard enough getting people to lead the church without you laying down all those laws. (laughs) It wasn't me that laid down the laws, dear. So having fulfilled all those criterion, the bishop must be formally set apart for his duties. In the Christian church, we call that ordination. Paul told Titus that he was to ordain elders in every church. Titus 1 and verse 5. All right, so what's the duties of these elders? That's the description of eldership. What is the duties of eldership? Well a man who desires an eldership desires a good work. That's the first thing. Paul told Timothy that to be a bishop, an elder, an overseer, a pastor is a good work. For a bishop, everything has to be that little bit extra. Every Christian's to be engaged in good works, and even so more so this overseer, this bishop. So the bishop's task is work. It's labor. It's not a profession. It's not a professional qualification. It's not earning a respectable living. It's not the picture of the old country vicar sitting in his parsonage with the people doing obeisance to him. And he walks down the road to the garden, and he has a glass of with the parishioners, that's long gone. The bishop's task is hard work. It's a lifetime of labour. I had lunch with two friends, and my wife and I had lunch with two friends on um, on Monday this week, and uh, one of the the, the, the lady. So husband and wife, the lady said to me, Bob, have you any intention of retiring? And I said, Retiring from what? She said, Retiring from the ministry. <laughs> I never thought of such a thing. But I'll retire when I'm not allowed to speak anymore. Or when my voice fails. Or when I get so old that I can't manage to get to the front. Or when the Lord calls me home bishop's task is labor. It's a lifetime of service. It's good labor. The the church doesn't draft its laborers. They they volunteer. They do a good work. The bishop's task is God's labor. The minister, the pastor, or the elder's conscience must be bound up with the word of God. It's a witness for the Lord, and it's God's labor. And specifically to the elders from Ephesus, Paul reminds these elders in his farewell address that they have these God-given responsibilities within the church. Let's go back to it. Acts chapter 20. The duties of eldership is to be aware of the spiritual condition of the church. Mark this in your Bible. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Very important for an elder. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. The first duty of those elders in Ephesus is to actually be aware of what's going on in the local church. That might involve personal examination. In 1 Timothy 4 and 16, Paul expands on it. He says, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. It's very important to have accountability as an elder. Because we have to watch ourselves. We have to watch ourselves carefully. We have to watch our personal lives. We have to watch our language. We have to watch our witness. And we have to watch that we're sticking to the doctrine that is presented in the scriptures. We can't neglect it. We're to continue in them. So it would be personal examination on a constant basis. And pastoral examination. This is one of the reasons for a pastor to be out and about among the flock. Great case here for pastoral visitation, in a spiritual sense. I know I'm talking about this all the time, but to go from home to home is part of the pastoral pastoral role. Nowadays, uh, in some of these churches, the pastors become almost like a business leader. He's a chief executive. He sits in his office. He doesn't have a study anymore. He has an office. And he's the teaching pastor or the executive pastor. And he has visiting pastors and preaching pastors all around him. And I ask you, my friends, what is the point of that? If the pastor is sending somebody else out to visit the flock and to find out what the condition, the spiritual condition of the flock is, how is he going to know when he comes into the pulpit what to say and what to preach about? And of course, catechesis is part of that. And that's hard today. Modern church structures have mitigated against biblical ministry. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great believer in addressing spiritual needs from the pulpit. But the pastor who does not know what the spiritual needs of the congregation actually are cannot hope even to do that. So the first thing that a pastor or an elder has to do or anyone who is overseeing the work of God is to be aware of the spiritual condition of the church, and that includes yourself. Not only to be aware but to be alert. Verse 31. Therefore watch. Job of the oversight is to watch over the church. One of the real reasons for the pastor to be in place is to keep a watch over the flock. What kind of a shepherd would it be who would abandon the sheep to its own pleasures? to his own pleasures, to be careless about his guardianship. The sheep would soon wander. why should a shepherd watch the flock? To guard it from harm, and also to be, thirdly, compassionate. Verse 35. Look at Paul. The reason why Paul talked about his ministerial integrity. It wasn't to boast about how good a pastor he was. It was to be an example. So in verse 35, he says, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. That's important. There are weak Christians you know, I used to wonder about this in early days in ministry back in the eighties. I used to come home and sit down and say, My goodness, why do I have to carry these people? Why do they keep getting into bother? Why do they keep coming for help? Why can I not be spiritually strong and just keep on going the way they ought? Used to be you were constantly calling with them and they were always in trouble and always needing counselling. And I was thinking, I shouldn't have to do that. Why are these people that stand on their own two feet, spiritually speaking? Well, here's why. How that soul labouring, you ought to support the weak. It is the Christian pastor or elder or overseer's duty to support the weak in the church, just like a shepherd supports the lambs. Jeanette watches these farming programs on TV sometimes. Suppose it comes of being a farmer's daughter, and she had one on the other night, and I was sitting reading and half looking at it and half reading. And Sometimes wee interesting things came up on it. It was a man who had a donkey. His donkey had had a wee foal. I did you see it. His donkey had had a wee foal. And the, the female donkey had rejected the foal. And these two old farmers, they spent weeks at night sitting up feeding the wee baby donkey. They milked an old goat. And they put the goat's milk into a pail and they put it into a wee bottle and then they fed the baby donkey every night. And I was sitting, I caught my attention. And I said, isn't that amazing that they're doing that? And she looked at me, the wife. She says, we used to do that all the time with lambs. We had pet lambs. We brought them in and put them beside the cooker in a wee box and got up in the middle of the night and fed them. The shepherd feeds the weak in the flock. Very practical advice from Paul to these Ephesian elders. So the pastor or the elder is to labor. Here's how he's to labor. He's to be aware constantly of what's going on in the church, of the spiritual condition of the church. Watching over himself, watching over others. He's to be alert to dangers that's coming in from outside and he's to be compassionate. Towards the rest of the flock to look after them to love the flock as Christ loved the church and because Christ loved them and cares for them so the pastor will love and care for them and will be moved to pity for them when they suffer. Now we're nearly finished. What's the dangers of eldership? We'll seen a description of it we have seen the duties of it. What's the dangers of it? Well, the danger is that flocks are always in danger of attack. I suppose that's always been the case, hasn't it? Even more in the days of Paul. The shepherd would have been out in the wilds. He'd have had to protect the flock from wild animals. There would have been wolves in those days. Imagine the fear, the cold, dark nights, the stillness, and the far off and the distance, the threatening howl of a wolf, the ancient call of the wild that forbid, that that forebodes the, the, the pack of wolves, gathering together for to attack the sheep, fierce, hungry beasts that have no mercy or pity, descending upon helpless animals with only a shepherd, with only an elder, and overseer, to stand between the sheep and their ferocious foes who want to rip them to shreds. So in verse 29... Paul says, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Look at their ferocity. Savage beasts. Look at their intention. In verse 30. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, To draw away disciples after them. They're coming to get them for sure. Ferocious beasts. And they're even coming from inside the church. Also of your own selves. Paul was right to caution these Ephesian elders about the dangers that will confront any godly man who attempts to lead with the very same measure of integrity that Paul demonstrated in his own ministry. The church at Ephesus had suffered just as Paul had warned. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2, the Lord Jesus sends a message to that church he says, I know thy works and thy labour and thy patience, which thy canst and how thy canst not bear them which are evil, and I have tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Sure enough, just as Paul said, From within themselves there would come false apostles. From outside would come ferocious wolves. Thankfully the people who led the church at Ephesus had listened to Paul's admonition and they had tried those men and they had tested them and they had weighed up their message against the scriptures and they had found them one thing. Anyway, the time of parting has finally come for us as well as for Paul. Paul must leave. Only, sadly, I will be back in a couple of weeks' time. Paul was leaving for good. And the Ephesians would not see his face again, and there's great sorrow among them. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, And they began to weep openly and they threw their arms around Paul's neck and they kissed him. And they grieved and they were distressed because they would never see him again.